Well, this morning, I'm going to just uh, start out in a little bit of an unusual way with just uh, starting with the scripture passage, just paint the context of where we're going to be going today. So I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, starting out in verse 1, and it'll be on the screen right behind me. It says this, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ." God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what I just read are the opening lines of the book of 1 Corinthians. And, and 1 Corinthians is actually a letter. Um, it was written by the apostle Paul, and he wrote it to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. And, uh, and we're going to make our way through this letter in the weeks ahead and uh, what I want to start out by pointing out is just how many um, things that Corinth and Carmel have in common. You might be surprised, um, even not just beyond Carmel, just our, our culture at large. And so let me just tell you a little bit about this city of Corinth. It, it was a pagan kind of anything goes type of town. And they worshipped there um, pretty much everything but the one true God. And uh, it was also a very segmented society. People divided along party lines. They were entrenched in their different camps and, and the tribes they belonged to. And, and the people in Corinth, they would showcase whatever they had to showcase. Whatever they had to show off, they did. And, and they defined their worth by, by what they were able to do, by their accomplishments and their abilities. Uh, Corinth was also a sue-happy society. And so uh, they would quickly and, and normally take their neighbors to court and uh, thought nothing of it. Uh, the moral code in Corinth was kind of set to loose. And so the norm was sexual promiscuity, self-indulgence, do what you want uh, as much as you can. Uh, there was precious little um, appreciation for things like gender distinctions um, how to order a home life. Um, things like marriage didn't really matter much in Corinth. Uh, commitments were typically based on convenience. And, and so you could sum up Corinth. Uh, the city slogan could very easily have been, you do you. I don't know if that sounds like any place you're familiar with. Um, but one day, into this ancient city of Corinth, the Apostle Paul walks into it. He makes his way in it, and he starts sharing the gospel. He starts preaching the good news about Jesus Christ, and, and, and God worked in some amazing ways. People came to faith, and eventually a church started. A church was planted, and this letter is written to that church, and the faith of those people 
it was genuine, but it was juvenile. Um, so they effectively, at this church, they effectively imported all of the values of the culture outside of the church into the way they lived, into the way they did church. And so the church life was pretty much a, a carbon copy, a reflection of, of the way life looked outside of the church. It just had like a, like a Jesus sticker slapped on the bumper, you know, like you, maybe you've seen that guy, right? He's like, he's got the honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker. And he's got that while he's got the window open, giving someone the finger out the window, right? And so that guy is on his way to the first church of Corinth. But it's just as likely that he's on his way here to Lakeview Community Church on a Sunday morning, right? And, 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 and this could be any of us. And if that applies to you, as you look back on your life, I've got some good news. The good news is this, is God loves you. And he wants you, and he wants me, and he wants all of his children to grow. The goal is to grow up. And, and so the title of the series we're walking through is called Growing Pains. And, and this, this book of 1 Corinthians, this 16-chapter letter, it's like a case study that's all about growing up. It's about cultivating a faith that, that doesn't take its cues from culture. It, instead reflects the, the heart of God, the values of his kingdom. And so it's a blueprint, um, and the blueprint is working out who God is, the reality, the truth of God, not just to church life, not just to some religious box, but to every area of life. And so there's a verse that I think sums up the entire book that I think will guide us through the weeks ahead. The message of this book would be in chapter 10, verse 31. It says this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's, that's like the bullseye. And, and I hope you hear that call um, this morning, today, in the weeks ahead, that um, this is our call to do all of life to the glory of God. And right here in this introduction, just those few verses I read, you can kind of see how the stage is getting set for it. I don't know if you noticed the way that Paul describes the church. He says, those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And, and that word sanctified means set apart. See, God's game plan for his children, it goes beyond just like fitting in with everybody else, being accepted to, by everybody else. He, he calls us beyond acceptance and he wants us to actually be exceptional, right? Very different track, very different game plan from just being accepted. He, his call for his children is to like stand out like stars shining in the darkness, he sets his children apart for a holy purpose. It says, call to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, that's us. That's what we've been doing this morning. We've been calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as we've been singing and, and praying. And so this is our call as well. And, and I hope we hear that today, this morning, that we would hear that call to live as saints. Um, and, and saints is another word for just meaning holy ones. And sometimes we think of saints and, you know, we think of a, 
a monk or a nun or somebody who sits in a room and, and studies the Bible and prays all day. And I want you to just take that and push that aside. When you think of a saint, when you think of a holy one, I want you to think of whole instead of like partial and whole. And holiness is about living the kind of life that God originally designed for us to live. And that's what growing up looks like. And the only way that any of us can ever hope to grow up is with heaping doses of God's amazing grace, right? It's, it is something that takes our activity, our, our engagement, but understand this, growing up, maturing doesn't happen through human effort. Um, it is the outcome, the product of God's amazing, empowering grace that's pouring into our lives. Um, this grace that, uh, according to Titus 2.12, it says that it trains us, God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Maybe you thought, I thought God's grace just forgave us. Yeah, it does forgive us, but it does a lot more than that. It fuels us and it empowers us to live the kind of life he calls us to. And so here's one more little bit of good news uh, before we jump in further and move on. God's supply of grace is not going to run out. He has all the grace that you need and I know that I need to, to grow up, to live out his call, and he's not stingy with it. He dishes it out. He loves to pour it out to his children. And even the next line in that introductory paragraph says, grace to you and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that sets the stage for where we're going. Let's just keep moving on and we're to jump in and look at the very first growth area that gets identified here. It's in verse, chapter, verse 10 and it says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united and of the same mind and of the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Okay, so this is the first area, the first growth area. The Corinthian church, they were walking out of a, out of a worldly blueprint and it was destroying their unity. It was even undermining the gospel. And, and what it was is they were, they were kind of infatuated with eloquent speech. You know, in their day, there were these professional philosophers. They're called sophists. And these guys would travel town to town and they would set up a stage in the public square and they would give kind of what amounted to a first century TED talk. You know, these speeches that were just so sharp, so impressive. The most impressive orators of their day would, would just be showcased there. Their finely tuned rhetorical skills and, and it was kind of like entertainment. The crowds would gather and they would just be, wow, I can't believe how incredible a communicator that guy is. And so what happened is that value started getting imported into the church. And they started like 
evaluating the teachers and, and rating the messages based on how well the, the preacher performed, right? How eloquent, how polished he came across. Now, of course, none of you do that, right? Um, but believe it or not, at some churches, that still happens. You know, they leave church, they go home, sit around the dinner table, have lunch, and what's on the menu is roasted pastor, right? You know, <laughs> how did he do? What happened here? What could he have done better? Um, and uh, here at this church in Corinth, these fan clubs started forming. You know, everyone had their favorite guy. I follow Paul, I follow Apostle, I, Apollos, I, I follow Cephas, and, and it was it was fragmenting their fellowship. They're not united. They're, they're segmented into these fan caps because their loyalty lies to their leaders instead of to their Lord. And that was the problem. Now, the leaders that are being identified here, Paul and Cephas, Apollos, and whoever else, these are all good guys. They're, they're godly men, and, and of course they're different. You know, they've got their own individual styles and personalities and whatever else, but they're all on the same team. They're wearing the same Jesus jersey. They're all preaching the same good news, and the same Holy Spirit was working through them in powerful ways. So they have zero intention of, of causing division, but that's not the problem. The problem is that there's this inclination in the human heart. There's this inclination that we all know that wants to make too much of men, that wants to put people on pedestals and even turns in individuals in, into idols. I'll give you a kind of an example, I think. Uh, um, not that long ago, um, a guy named Andrew Peterson, he's a Christian um, uh, songwriter, and he came out with this great song. The song is called, He's Worthy. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's a beautiful worship song. Uh, he's one of actually my favorite songwriters. And I actually, I think it's possible um, that our Easter choir may be, that may be on the short list of one of the songs we're going to sing for Easter. I can't verify that. Uh, but it has been floated around as a possibility. But uh, it's a really beautiful worship song. And after that came out, um, another guy named Chris Tomlin, he's like the Christian music sort of superstar, right? He released his own version of it. The thing is, though, he changed a few of the words. A couple of the lines were slightly different. And when the Andrew Peterson fan base, yes, such a thing exists, okay? Um, when they got wind of that, it started an absolute firestorm, an outrage. How dare Chris Tomlin change the lyrics to a song that's not his? Who does this guy think he is? That is not right. If I hear that song on the radio, I'm turning it off. It ought to be taken off the air. You name it, it kept on going on. And so finally, Andrew Peter him, Peterson himself, he, he took to social media to set his fan base straight. He basically said, I'm paraphrasing this, but he said, hey guys, I love you all, but would you please knock it off? <laughs> he said, you don't need to defend me. Chris and I are good friends. I actually love his version of the song. I was honored that he wanted to cover it. I was aware of the changes he made, and he did so with my full approval and blessing. So in conclusion, have a nice day. 
and maybe find something better to uh, fixate on. Um, that's, that's just a small example of this inclination we have to kind of put people on pedestals. And it's a problem that persists. And just a forewarning in 1 Corinthians here, it actually, it's a problem that takes four chapters. The first four chapters are all about this issue of people and leaders and the Lord. And so we're going to hear a little bit more on the subject in the next couple of weeks. And I, th I hope that's okay, uh, because I think it's an ongoing challenge for all of us, for many of us, to appreciate people uh, without idolizing them. You know, in, in this church in Corinth, this is what we were, this were where they were at. Who baptized you? That mattered more than that you were baptized, right? That's where they were at. I, I've been a part of churches where the culture was that they viewed the pastor as some kind of spiritual superhero. Uh, you know, we're part of the Protestant church movement, right? So we don't believe in priests, you know, and these people who, you know, are intermediaries between us and God. But I don't know, in practice, that's a whole lot harder um, than, uh, you know, to, to live that out. And there's times where you start asking yourself, who, who are we committed to here? Is it the leader or is it the Lord? Um, so that's the growth area. It's been identified, this inclination to just make too much of men. And so what comes next after the problem is the prescription. And it's about shifting the spotlight back to where it belongs, minoring on the men and majoring on the Messiah, minoring on how polished people are and majoring on this simple, powerful, beautiful message of the gospel. So uh, here's how it starts. It says in verse 13, it says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius and so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." All right, where is this going here? What Paul, I think, is doing is he's sort of sharing, here's what is and isn't a part of my job description. Just laying it out there. He's already reminded them right here. He says, guys, I wasn't crucified for you. Um, and, and, and people, they, they're not baptized into the name of Paul. I think, I think he's, what he's getting at is, don't make too much of me. You know, turn the volume down. God didn't put him in their lives to be their savior. Instead, he put them in their lives to lead them to the savior. And that's an important point. You know, God doesn't put people in any of our lives to be our spiritual superhero. Sometimes we need to hear that, right? Or to meet all of our needs or, or to cultivate some kind of dysfunctional, codependent relationship because Maybe they need to be needed just like we do or, you know, or to be impressed and people need to tell me how great my sermons are and how clever and polished they are. It's a problem. 
uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of pastors I got to tell you uh, who need to hear that, who need that reminder. You are not your church's savior. Um, too often I just hear the stories of moral failures, and I heard another one not that long ago of a friend of mine. Um, he took to social media and gave what I would call a quasi-confession of his moral failure. It's quasi because he didn't really confess to anything. He just made excuses and rationalizations. And one of them was this. He said, I gave everything I had to my church. I had nothing left, nothing more to give. I was on empty. He almost made it sound noble. Uh, like, but what he didn't talk about was, why in the world would you do something like that? Where did you get the idea that God called you to sacrifice your life, to blow up your family and your church for the sake of your church? That's insane. Here's the reality. None of us can be anyone else's savior. That position has already been filled by Jesus. We are called to, to love people. We're called to go long with each other. But ultimately, here's the truth, the best thing any of us can do is connect the people in our lives with the one they need most. It's not us, it's him. It's the Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul's kind of setting that straight. He says, guys, this is, this is what I'm here for. This is my primary responsibility. I'm here to lead people to the Lord by sharing this gospel message with them. The gospel, and he's like, don't get the wrong idea. It's not a TED talk. You know, it's not about how eloquent I can be in impressing people like that. It's, it's not about doing anything, in fact, that would make people think it has anything to do with me. It's all about him. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the savior all of us need. I don't know if you know your mailman. Um, we actually have a, a male woman or a male lady, I guess you'd call it, and I don't know her name, but uh, I think she's one of the best that USPS has to offer. I mean, she drives this little right truck, you know, the delivery truck, and I pass her on the road, and I wave, and she waves back, and she's always there at a reasonable time with the mail, and I see sometimes she's got to work around the garbage pails, you know, and figure things out, and, and when it's snowing out, and there's these drifts of snow in front of the mailbox, she still comes. Um, for us, she even has to put up with our crazy dog when she's got to put a delivery out front. And our dog is insane, but she carries dog biscuits with her. Brilliant. I mean, that is just going way above and beyond the call of duty. I think we may have the best male lady ever in the history of them. But here's the thing. When I come back inside after I'm picking up the mail out of the mailbox, I'm not thinking about her. I, no, no offense, it's just that you know, I'm looking at the mail she's delivered. That's, that's kind of the point, right? And I kind of think that's what, that's what Paul's getting at here. I'm the mailman. It's really, it's all I am. My job is to deliver this message, this beautiful message that leads people to the Lord Jesus Christ. The message is what matters, not the messenger, the message is what reconnects sinful, broken people to their creator, a holy God. That's it's the gospel message. It's the good news. It's, 
Because my, my goal, our goal is to, is to deliver it with clarity, not cleverness. In fact, he kind of goes on and says, you know, this, this lust you guys have to hear these beautiful, sharp, eloquent speeches and manipulate the message to make it sound like impressive to people, you're actually working against it. Uh, here's what he says. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There's a, there's a lot in that. There's a lot in that. But what I think is getting at is that, you know, God has divinely designed this gospel message that if you are just looking at it from a human point of view, you are going to just think it's the most absurd, ridiculous thing you've ever heard. It's this, it's this message that Jesus died on the cross, um, and he says, neither Greeks nor Jews had any interest in that. So, you know, today it's a little different because we associate crosses as a religious symbol, like as a relic. But originally, you know, the Greeks, if they saw a cross, that was an instrument of execution. So imagine wearing an electric chair as your necklace. You know, you wouldn't do that. That would sound absurd. Crosses were reserved for the worst criminals in the Roman Empire. And there was no more humiliating way to die than to die a death naked on a cross. Nothing at all appealing about that. And then when a, when a Jewish person heard the message of the cross, they thought of Deuteronomy 21, 23, that says anyone who, who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. So they think about a crucified Messiah? That's, sorry guys, that's a non-starter. But then it says this, that, that that same simple, undiluted message, when those who God calls hear it, whether they be Jews or Greeks or English or Irish or African or whatever it is, they receive it and they respond to it. See, the Holy Spirit works through that gospel message to change lives, to transform them. He ignites it and supernaturally jumpstarts people's hearts to make them alive to God. That's the power of the cross. And I got to tell you, that's way beyond my pay grade, right? And yours. <laughs> None of us can do that. The finest orators in the world, in the history of humanity, have never been able to do what the simple, plain proclamation of the gospel message has been doing over the past 2,000 years plus. So that's how it works. We, we, we proclaim, the Holy Spirit ignites. That's the plan. So our goal is to simply share the gospel 
clearly, boldly. And whatever happens after that, it's up to God. Some people are going to walk away and think you're absolutely out of your mind. And other people are going to respond. And it's going to be a life-changing experience. So let me just take a moment. Uh, do, try to do that the best I can right now. What is this gospel? When we talk about this gospel message, it's, it's gospel means good news. And it's God's good news about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for us. It's the message that God, our creator, loves us. He designed us to live life with him, but we've sinned. Uh, that's been the history of our world from the first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned. And ever since then, that sin has separated us from a God who is loving, but is also holy. And there's just been this, this gulf that cannot be bridged by our efforts, by our good works, by anything other than his son, Jesus. And he sent his son, fully man, fully God, to be that bridge to bring us back to a right relationship with God. Jesus came and lived a perfect, sinless life, and he went to the cross, and he died as a sacrifice in our place so that we could be forgiven, so we can be reconciled, so we could be accepted by God. And everything that had to be done for that to happen happened on the cross. That's the good news. And that good news invites a response. It invites the response to simply receive what Jesus has done by believing him, by believing it, by trusting personally that what Jesus did on the cross, he did for you, for me. And when that happens, God gives salvation. He reconciles us, not, as a, not because we've been so good, but as a free gift because of Jesus and all that he's done. And from that moment, he sees you the same way he sees his son, Jesus. That's, as best I can say, that's, that's the gospel message. And it's, it's unlike any other message. It's not the message of religion, which is just try to be a good person, try to do your best, and maybe God will accept you. The gospel says you cannot do enough. None of us can, and that's why Jesus came. He's the only one who's good enough. So receive what he's done. And that's the point that I guess Paul's getting at in this whole part of this, start of this book, this growth area. He says, guys, it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. And God set this whole plan of salvation up in such a way that when we're up in heaven, right, no one's going to be talking about themselves. There's no braggadocia in heaven, you know, yeah, you know what got me here? You know, I helped 16 ladies across the street. I bought groceries for that guy. I helped that homeless person. I went to church and prayed 15 prayers every morning. No, that's not going to be what we're talking about. No one's going to be bragging about themselves. No one's going to be talking about these leaders that we prop up, anything like that. The only one anyone's going to be boasting about is Jesus and all that he's done for us. And so let me just ask you, what is the basis of your relationship with God? Is it what I do for him, or is it what he's done for me? That's, 
that's kind of how this whole starts. The, the gospel, the good news is, is, is responding and keeping Jesus front and center. And so the question that I ask that I think that clarifies it most is when you stand at the gates of heaven and God asks you, why should I let you here? Why should I let you in through these gates? What's your, what's your answer going to be? If it's anything other than Jesus and his sacrifice for me, you got to go back and check your answer. It's not about us. It's about him. What are you trusting in to be made right with God? Is it, I, I'm just going to do my best? Um, or is it God? Is it Jesus? The answer according to the gospel is, it's just Jesus, him only. And, and so growing up, growing up spiritually, growing up with the Lord, it, here's where it starts. It starts, starts with the gospel. Because it's the gospel that leads us to the Savior whose name is Jesus. And so the life that's growing is the life that's keeping Jesus front and center. Now there's plenty of people God uses who blesses us with, who comes alongside us and all that kind of stuff. And we, we're just thankful for that. But there's only one Savior. So appreciate the people and exalt the Savior. And this morning, if there's anything that's been prompted in your heart that, you know what, there's someone, there's something else or someone else that I've put front and center in my life other than Jesus, this is the right time to do some rearranging. Let's pray together.